Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you for this great passage about the light of your salvation coming into the darkness of our world. And we pray you give us ears to hear uh, these words this day and, and to reflect on them in the coming weeks as in the lead up to Christmas. Uh, for Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Yeah, so in the, uh, in the lead up to Christmas, uh, we're going to be looking at a few uh, famous passages uh, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're wrapping up this last bit of Isaiah chapters 1 to 12. And as we look at these passages, uh, this seems to have dropped out. Uh, as we look at these passages, uh, I'm hoping that we come to understand not just what happened at Christmas, uh, but what uh, what the, the significance of what happened at Christmas, if you like. So most people are pretty clear on the, the details of the actual story, like there's shepherds and wise men and a baby in a manger and all that kind of thing. Uh, but what does it all mean? Like, what, what difference does Christmas actually make? And today we're going to see that uh, it, it makes a whole lot of difference. Right? Because at Christmas, uh, the incredible light of God's salvation comes into the darkness of our world. Right? That's a massive difference. Uh, maybe some of you are thinking, that's partly why Paul asked that question, uh, what do you mean by darkness? Right? Our, our world's a wonderful place. It's just full of glory and light and beauty. Uh, and of course it is. Our world is a wonderful place. Uh, but not, not all of it. Right? Not all of it's wonderful. Uh, if you allow yourself to think about it, our world it can be a pretty dark place. I just read that statement about domestic violence. Right? Our world's a place where women regularly fear for their safety, uh, where they feel trapped or are trapped in abusive and controlling relationships. That's dark. It's horrible. It's not wonderful. It's a place where millions go hungry uh, while the rest of us often gorge ourselves on food. Now, I'm all for enjoying food, but sometimes I wonder, you know, when I'm sitting there on Christmas afternoon thinking, can I squeeze in another something? But it's a place where children are left homeless and abandoned on the street, a place uh, full of war and violence and oppression, of sickness and disease and death. And we're told regularly that it's a place where increasing numbers of people feel that there's so little meaning and purpose in life that the only way out is to take their own life. Right? This world is a wonderful place, but it's not all wonderful. It's also a very dark place. So we come to Isaiah's words in verse 2 of today's passage. If you have a look there, uh, they really stand out like a beacon in our world, right? Because Isaiah says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Right? This is what Christmas is about, the heart of Christmas, the light of God's salvation. We'll see Jesus Christ himself coming into the darkness of our world. And you'll notice first in our passage that this light of God's salvation is a gracious light. Well, you don't usually think of light being gracious, but go with me on it. Have a look in verse 1. Isaiah says, uh, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those uh, who were in distress. In the humbled land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, uh, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, if you're one of Isaiah's original hearers, uh, this verse would have sounded completely ridiculous. Right? It would have been a massive surprise uh, because they would have been thinking, uh, right, uh, if God's going to do something new, something, uh, something spectacular, if God is going to come and save and restore his people, uh, then he'll start in Jerusalem. 
Right, we've already seen in this first part of Isaiah, in the whole book of Isaiah, uh, Jerusalem's like divine headquarters. If anything's going to happen, uh, surely God will start in Jerusalem. Uh, but Isaiah says, no. Right, God's going to do this new, incredible thing, light in darkness, uh, and he's going to start uh, in Bendigo. Right, that's where I came from. Right down in Karambara, that's where Paul's from. In Shepparton, in Maui. But it's nowhere of particular significance, right? That's the point. Even when the 12 tribes of Israel were still in the land, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were, were kind of on the northern edge, right? Right out on the fringe. Uh, and now those northern tribes, or they're soon to, to be deported. Right? As I says, they've been humbled. They've gone into exile. So Galilee uh, is a part of Israel that did have some Jews living in it, uh, but it also had a bunch of other people living there, people from all sorts of nations. Right? That's why it's called Galilee of the Nations. It's a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-spirituality uh, area, an area that the Jewish people, therefore, considered to be spiritually unclean. Right? You should avoid Galilee at all costs. And what does Isaiah say? He says, one day God will honour that region. The light of his salvation will come first out of Galilee. As I said, that that would have sounded completely ridiculous to Isaiah's hearers. Even in Jesus' day, it would have sounded ridiculous to a Jew. You might remember, even in John chapter 1, right? Nathaniel is about to meet Jesus, about to be introduced to him for the first time, and someone says, yeah, he's this rabbi, he's amazing, incredible teacher. Uh, Let me tell you where he's from. He's from Nazareth. What does Nathaniel say? He says, Nazareth? Right, can anything good come out of Nazareth in Galilee? That backwater place? Right, God's bringing the light of his salvation first to the place we would least expect. Right, and that's one of the main themes of Christmas. Isn't it? Jesus, where's Jesus born? He's born in a feeding trough. Right, not in the palace in some comfortable hotel, right? He's born uh, to a teenage girl who wasn't even married and bears all the stigma associated with that, right? He's born into a poor, insignificant family, not a wealthy and influential family. His birth is announced first uh, to shepherds, right? People at the bottom of the social order. Uh, some of the first people to visit Jesus are these, these pagan philosophers from the East, right? not the, the Jewish religious elites, right? Jesus had none of the markers you would expect of someone who was going to establish a a kind of movement uh, that didn't just have global influence, but that was going to have cosmic influence. None of the markets. He's the saviour you would least expect. And that starts right here. Where Isaiah says that movement is going to start, it's going to be launched, it's going to be kicked off uh, in Galilee. Of all places. Not because Galilee is better than anywhere else, more religious, more moral, more more deserving in any way. No. Uh, If anything, at least in human terms, it's more undeserving. And that's exactly why God picks it. He wants you and I to know that the light of his salvation is available to anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. God's salvation is not a reward for being good. It's not something you deserve. It's a gift of grace that you don't deserve. Right? Even the people of Galilee can have it. Right? The light of God's salvation is a gracious light. Second, the light of God's salvation uh, is a life-giving light. Uh, have a look in verse 2. Uh, if you've got the passage there, Isaiah says, uh, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Uh, that, that phrase, uh, that kind of word, deep darkness, uh, it's pretty interesting. It's actually a, a combination of two words that it seems like Isaiah just made up. Right? It doesn't really happen uh, anywhere else. Uh, it literally means those living under the death shadow. That's the two words that are put together. Uh, and so clearly Isaiah is trying to connect these two ideas of darkness and death. Right? Those living under the shadow of death, this deep darkness. And that's probably not that surprising because most of us know that uh, light and life go together. They go together in the Bible, like back in Genesis 1, God creates all sorts of life, uh, but he starts with light, right? That's what he starts with. Let there be light, he says, because you've got to have light for there to be life. Oops, excuse me. My notes went a bit funny. in fact, uh, as I was uh, preparing this sermon during the week, I got onto Google uh, and uh, Googled the question, uh, if the sun was to go out, how long would life on Earth survive? I was just thinking about that, like conceptually, uh, what, what, would, what would happen? And I came across an article on a website called Popular Science. You can look it up if you like. Uh, but it said that uh, if the sun was to, to just go out, uh, the first thing that would happen would be that within a year, uh, the average temperature on Earth would drop to minus 73 degrees. Oh, that's pretty cold. And within 10 years, it'd be it'd kind of stabilised to minus 240 degrees. So it's hard for much life to survive in those conditions. Uh, second, of course, if the sun was to go out, uh, the whole process of, of photosynthesis as we know it would stop. Right. So, so the largest trees, they might last, they, we're told, maybe six, maybe eight years, uh, but most of the rest would be dead within a week. And of course, most of us would freeze to death uh, within a, a few days. Uh, unless you could somehow start constructing now a really sophisticated submarine that could get you into the deepest parts of and warmest parts of the ocean, or, or maybe some kind of geothermal shelter that could harness volcanic energy deep underneath the ground. I don't know, but most of us probably wouldn't have time for that, uh, and so freeze to death within a few days. Right? We, we understand this. If there wasn't any sun, life as we know it would not be possible. Light and life are inextricably linked. So, so what does Isaiah mean when he says, on those living in this land of deep darkness, under the shadow of death, a light has dawned? I used to think he was only talking about spiritual darkness and spiritual life. And that is a big part of what he's talking about. Uh, but I, now I'm not sure that that's only what he's talking about, you see. I've just explained that if the sun was to go out, life as we know it, physical life, uh, would end. Of course, the thing is, the sun is going out, isn't it? I'm not much of a scientist, but I've read up a bit. Like The sun is actually, it's a star, you know, big star, and it is actually going to die. It might uh, take another five billion years or so. Most of us probably won't be here. Uh, But eventually, the sun is going to die. So so what is it that, unlike the sun, uh, can give us light and life forever? The sun's not going to be able to do it forever. The sun's dying. All of us live under the shadow of death. Uh, disease, death and decay. What is it that's going to give us light and life forever? Well, it's the light that existed before the sun. You remember Genesis 1, God says, let there be light and there was light. But you also remember that the sun wasn't created for a few more days. Right? So there was this light somehow that existed before the sun. What's that light? Well, if you go to the other end of the Bible, in the, in the book of Revelation, uh, we see that God's creating a new heavens and new earth. 
No, it's a place where disease and death and decay no longer exist. There's no shadow of death. No deep darkness anymore, just abundant light and life. And what we also see in Revelation is that there's no sun. No sun at all. Where where does this life-giving light come from? Revelation 21, verse 23, says this, uh, The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, uh, doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The new creation doesn't need any sun because the light of God's glory, the light of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will bring light and life to everyone and everything. It's Jesus Christ who who is the ultimate life-giving light. He's the one who can bring uh, life to to people like you and I who who live under this shadow of death, disease, death, decay. He can bring life to us both now and forever. He's the ultimate life-giving light. Uh, Third, the light of God's salvation is a liberating light. Uh, I said in my gospel community during the week that I was wrestling with the fact that I had two L's in my sermon outline. I couldn't kind of make it all fit around L's, so I'm sorry about that uh, with the alliteration. But we've got life-giving and liberating. Hopefully that's memorable for you. Anyway, let me read verses 3 to 5. Isaiah says, liberating light, from verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of, uh, day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. I tried to emphasise it when I read it, but I think it's pretty obvious. The key word in verse 3 is joy. Right? Rejoice. Right? Instead of the sorrow of darkness and judgment, which we've seen a bunch of uh, in previous chapters, God's people are now filled with joy. They're rejoicing like, like people who've received a fruitful harvest, like warriors who've been victorious in battle. Right? Why are they joyful? Well, look in verse 4. Isaiah starts the verse by saying 4. He's saying, because, this is why they experience joy, because God has shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, has been destroyed. The light of God's salvation is a liberating light. That's the picture here. It brings freedom to people who are enslaved and burdened and oppressed. Most immediately, it brings freedom to the people of Israel when they're brought back from Babylon. We know that that's one hope. But in the big picture, freedom for those uh, who know Christ, which raises the question, is this spiritual or, or political freedom? Well, probably both in one way. Now, we don't want to go down the path of, of some people. Uh, this is kind of what's called liberation theology. Right? They would say that the God's only at work or primarily at work uh, when people are being liberated from oppression. Right? Even if that liberation is happening through a, a very violent revolution, lots of people being killed, uh, we don't care. That's where God's at work because liberation is happening. People are being freed from oppression. Right? We don't want to go down that path. We want to preserve the truth that the chief cause of oppression and burdens uh, that that plague our world, the chief yoke that has to be shattered, uh, is not the yoke of some social or political or economic system. The chief yoke that has to be shattered is sin, right? That's that's the core of all these things. Uh, And so the yoke, of course, that was shattered when Christ died for us on the cross. His blood, a ransom price to set us free. 
On the other hand, if you're someone who's been liberated from the burden of your sin, you've been freed from the oppressive power of sin in your life, uh, you'll be someone who's willing to do what you can to see the joy of liberation replace the sorrow of oppression in every sphere of life. You'll do what you can to do that, whether it be social or political or economic. So that's why I say on one level, first and primary, this is about spiritual liberation, but I think it leads to a seriousness about political liberation, social liberation. Because you've come to experience that the light of God's salvation is a liberating light. You've tasted that yourself. Finally, the light of God's salvation is a personal light. Have a look in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it uh, with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's gracious light, his his life-giving light, his liberating light, is not just some impersonal force, something you just kind of tap into. No, his light is found in a person, a child, a son. A son who will grow up to be the light of the world, the prince or king in God's kingdom. Now you might remember in this section of Isaiah, particularly from the start of chapter 7, we've seen that Isaiah's own children have some pretty amazing names that have some kind of theological, spiritual significance. Of course, none of them compare with this child's name. Well, this is a much more spectacular name. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't have time today to unpack all the details of those names, but I do want you to notice one thing about them, and that is, in the end, you could only give these names to God. You could only give these names to God. This child is called Mighty God. It's not just that he's got some divine traits. He's a bit like God. It's not that he's a messenger from God. The claim is that he is mighty God himself in human form. That's the claim. He's the everlasting father, right? the everlasting one, the one who existed outside of time and space, before time began, and who is the creator and sustainer of all things. Massive claim. Right? This is the, the most radical claim of the Christmas message, that this tiny baby in Bethlehem is God made flesh. Think Hark the Herald. Right? You probably sing these words, you forget what they mean. Right? Veiled in flesh, what? The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. Incarnate, that means in flesh. Hail the incarnate deity. This is the claim of Christianity. If this is true, if this child Jesus Christ really is God, uh, the the implication is that you can't be someone who who just kind of likes Jesus a bit. But as C.S. Lewis famously said, you've really only got three options when it comes to Jesus. You either believe that he's a lunatic, right, but because he's going around claiming to be God or letting people believe that he's God, in which case, why would you like him, right, let alone be someone who follows him? Or Jesus is a liar. Right? Once again, why would you like him or follow him? Or the third option is that Jesus actually is the Lord. The Lord Almighty in flesh. The mighty God, the everlasting Father. 
if that's the case, clearly it's not enough just to like Jesus. To be someone who kind of dabbles in his teaching a bit. Says, I'm inspired by him. I, I appreciate some aspects of what he was on about. No, that's not enough. If Jesus is the Lord, God made flesh, you have to surrender your life to him as Lord. You have to surrender to being a part of this kingdom that's being spoken about here. Oh, why, why would you do that? Well, of course, one motivation is fear. Right? I've just said Jesus is the Lord, right? He's powerful. Uh, if you don't surrender to him, he'll squash you. Right? So you better surrender to him. Right? He, he's the mighty God. But that's not the only motivation. It's not the best motivation. Have, have a look in verse 6. In verse 6, the, the other motivation for surrendering to Christ is that he's wonderful. He's wonderful. I don't know if you ever think about Christ in that way. He's a wonderful counsellor. Wonderful. Marvellous. Where do we see Christ's wonder? Well, it's in that liberation that verses 3 to 5 speak about. Have a look at those verses again. The picture in those verses is of a great battle against evil. A great battle. And ultimately, what's the result? Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destroyed. But evil is destroyed. The need for warrior's boots. Who needs them anymore? Just burn them in a fire. Who needs garments for battle? Just put them in the fire. What a wonderful picture. The battle against evil has been fought and won. But not by us. That's the thing. It's been fought by Christ, the wonderful king that's spoken about in verses 6 and 7. How does he fight this battle? Well, it's Isaiah 53, isn't it? He fights the battle. Isaiah says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. Right? This is the wonder of Christmas. This child, Jesus Christ, goes up to battle, uh, grows up to battle and defeat evil, uh, and yet he doesn't do it through exercising brute power, strength. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. How does he fight evil and injustice and oppression? He does it through weakness. He does it through his death on the cross, uh, through his suffering and death for our iniquity, for, for our evil. Of course, by evil, I think we, we, we struggle with that idea. Am I evil? Can I bring myself to say that I'm, I'm evil? Can I accept that? When I talk about us being evil, I'm not just talking about doing wrong things or particularly evil things like that those evil people do. Right? I'm talking uh, evil is, is not just about what we do but about who we are. It's, about, it's really uh, about what you might call our, that innate self-centeredness that all of us have. And we see that self-centeredness in the fact that all of us have this inbuilt, inbuilt desire to pursue wonder. It becomes this idea of wonder. We want that. Right? We want wonder and happiness and pleasure and beauty. Well, we're drawn to these things. We, we all have this desire. I mean, instead of satisfying that desire with the wonder of Christ, uh, we proudly think that we can find more happiness and pleasure and wonder in this world. Right? Our self-centred hearts are so captivated by the wonders of Christ's good gifts uh, that we are blinded to the wonder of Christ, right? the, the giver of the gifts. 
All the wonders of this world are designed to point us to him. But we're like self-absorbed kids on Christmas morning who are wrapped up in the gifts but couldn't care less about the giver, you see. And it's that self-centeredness that is what the Bible calls evil. It's at the heart of what the Bible calls evil. And so verses 3 to 5 are great news for us. Christ, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, does come to fight against and defeat evil. But he doesn't do that in power. Right? If he did that, none of us would have survived. But he came to defeat evil in weakness. Right? We see that at Christmas, don't we? The weakness of becoming a vulnerable baby. But not just in that, the weakness of the cross. The weakness of the cross, right? Where Christ, uh, instead of being punished, uh, instead of punishing, was punished. Instead of, instead of wounding, was wounded. Instead of killing, he was killed. That's how he fights and, and wins this great battle against evil. For you and me. That's the, that's the wonder of Christ. He's our wonderful counsellor. And it's actually when your heart's captured by that wonder that you'll give your heart to Christ, that you'll surrender your life to him. Because your heart will be set free from the other wonders of this world. Right? You'll be able to enjoy them for what they are, but they won't rule your life. See, Your heart was designed to be ruled by the wonder of Christ, not by the wonder of cars and homes and gifts, but the wonder of Christ. And once uh, you, you, your heart's captured by the wonder of Christ, you, you'll willingly surrender to him because you'll be convinced not just that he's a powerful king, right, so you ought to submit to him out of fear, but that he's a good king. He's a wonderful king, a perfect king, the kind of king you want to submit to. Uh, unlike Ahaz, right, back in chapter 7. You remember Ahaz? You remember all the kings of Israel and Judah before Ahaz who are, weren't perfect kings, who weren't good kings? who weren't able to establish the perfect kingdom, but they're not Jesus. Jesus can establish the perfect kingdom. That's verses 6 and 7. The kingdom in which the rule of evil is replaced by the the eternal rule of justice and righteousness and peace. So you can surrender to Jesus uh, as your king, the light of this world, because he's a powerful and good and perfect king. The cross shows you that. I wanted to finish by uh, telling you a story about a, a man uh, who was born and raised in prison. Sort of a little bit of a fairy tale type thing. Some, some of you might have heard it before. Uh, inside the prison, uh, the inmates uh, would often sit around and talk about whether there was a world outside the prison. They'd argue about it, uh, and most of them would say something along these lines. They'd say, no, uh, this, this is all there is. Right here, it might be dark and depressing and gloomy, but there's nothing better. The sooner you realise it, the better off you'll be. Don't, don't live in some fantasy world. Right, but one day, some, some mystery man appears in the prison. They people don't really know where he came from. Uh, and he says, I came from outside these prison walls and, and I want you to know that there's a whole other world out there. An incredible world. Right? And, he, and he's a bit of an artist. He starts drawing pictures on the wall. He, he, he draws trees and mountains and oceans. Right? And, and somehow, he draws them in all these different colours that they've never seen before. They've only seen the blacks and greys and browns of the prison. But here's this kind of world outside, drawn in technicolour. They're amazed. One day the man disappears as quickly as he came. And the young man's left thinking, I wonder if he's right. I wonder if that world outside really does exist. While he was with him, another thing he told the young prisoner was that in the outside of the world, there was a prince. I told you it was a fairy tale. 
a prince who was born for the purpose of breaking into the prison and setting the prisoners free. And one day, one day the young prisoner is sitting in his cell and he hears someone digging on the other side of the wall. He wonders what's going on. And all of a sudden this massive beam of light comes rushing into his cell. The prisoner looks through the hole and he sees a world outside, the, the world, just as the man had described. And then he hears a voice. Right here, it's the voice of the prince. Saying, now you know I'm real, now you know this world is real. Right, one day, he says, I'm going to come back and free you all together to live in my eternal kingdom. But now live your life in the hope of what you see through this wall. It's a taste of what's to come. So from that moment on, the young man, uh, he wasn't completely free, but he lived his life in the presence of a light from this completely other world. That, that's what it means to be a Christian, to embrace this message about Christmas. You know, lots of people say this world is a dark and depressing and gloomy place, but it's all there is. Suck it up, right? You're born, you live, you die, there's nothing else. But you only have to go to, to the average funeral to know that most people don't buy that. That's why we love fairy tales, right? We, we sense somehow that we were created for a better world than this, a, a more glorious world, a more wonderful world. And if you sense that, you're right, right? Because Isaiah says that with the coming of Jesus Christ, we who walk in darkness, who, who live under this shadow of death, who are imp- oppressed by it and imprisoned by it, have seen a great light, The coming of Christ is like a beam of light breaking into the darkness of our world, bringing life and grace and liberation and peace. It's wonderful, but it's just a taste, isn't it? A taste of what's to come when he comes to bring in his eternal kingdom. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that... uh, Uh, that shows us the glory, the wonder of our Lord Jesus, uh, who is indeed the light of the world. Uh, We thank you that uh, his light uh, is a gracious light available to anyone and everyone, anyone who would be humble enough to receive it. We thank you that his uh, light brings life uh, to us as we sit here today, conscious of our sickness, our frailty, uh, that we live under the shadow of disease and death and decay. And yet the Lord Jesus is the light that promises us life now and forever. Uh, We thank you for him uh, that he offers us liberation, freedom from the oppressive rule of sin as his death has has paid not just the penalty for our sin but has set us free from the power power of sin now and will one day bring us into his uh, eternal kingdom where we'll be free from the presence of sin forever. Oh, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who brings the light of your salvation. In his name we pray. Amen.